As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, have I ever told you like my idea for like uh, a two-part podcast or like a series of two-part podcasts? A series of two-part? Is it the debate one? No, it's different. Okay. So I don't know about you, Mm -hmm. but, but most of the time after we do these interviews, I usually have questions that I sort of kick myself for not having asked. Oh, yes, yes. So this often happens on the podcast because we often touch on kind of wide varying topics and we're not experts in a lot of the things that we talk about. And often the first episode is sort of, you get to know your subject matter and then you leave it with even more questions. Yeah, so I often like kick myself like, oh, I should have I should have obvious asked that, obviously. And then the other thing that happens is you post then the episode comes out and then like people on Twitter and elsewhere they talk like, about oh. it. They talk mm-hmm. about it. They're like, what I'm curious about is X. You're like, oh, that's a really good question too. I should have thought of that. So like I've thought like a thing that we should do maybe one day is schedule like have all episodes be two parters ah. where we do an interview with a guest take a week, sort of marinate on it, think about it, what are some questions we wish we'd ask, and then have the second episode scheduled. Oh, I really like that idea. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's almost the octopus model of of podcast episodes where like one, one episode just springs forth a dozen yeah. new arms and legs that you can talk about forever. So today... We're kind of gonna we're kind of gonna be doing that. We're, we're this is I think we might be, this might be close. I'm not sure what the record is, but this might be close to the soonest we've ever had a guest <laughs> on so soon after they appeared on the show. This is a pilot for podcast two parters. The only other time I can think of is we talked to Claudia Som twice mm. before the pandemic, and once because it was sort of like her general views on how to like forecast recessions and then like two weeks later like the pandemic was in view and there's like oh shoot this might be really bad so we had her on really fast but uh this is going to be close to that record i think yeah sounds good all right let's do it so we recently talked to patrick mckenzie he is a technology infrastructure financial infrastructure specialist he uh, worked for stripe for six years he's currently an advisor he's the author of the bits about money newsletter we talked to him about like corporate IT, why it is the way it is, why does it seem to be like years and years behind what we think of the cutting edge of software, why is it often clunky, why is it often have these big technical issues that can take a while to fix. That was a great conversation. The public loved it. 
But there's a lot going on in software these days. And the other sort of big trend that we haven't really talked about is that for the first time in, I don't know, maybe like 15 years, we've been seeing all these tech layoffs. Right. And I think there was a little bit of tension in that episode in that we were talking about why corporate software is so bad. So it's almost like, well, obviously there's a need for better software. And yet all these big tech companies that ostensibly provide these services are laying people off. But also... In the broader macro picture, since we recorded that episode, we had a payrolls report that came out much, much stronger than anyone expected. And yet we've seen these big tech companies lay off people. And so the question obviously becomes, is this something specifically about tech or are these layoffs sort of the first sign of something broader to come in the economy? And the other thing that everyone points out to when when you see these announcements from Meta and Alphabet and various startups and Microsoft and Amazon, they've all done it, is like they added so many jobs over the last two years that actually these layoffs are like fairly small in uh, the grand scheme of things, even for these companies based on the amount of hiring that they've done. Yeah, but I saw still, like, I saw a figure from yeah. Goldman Sachs, I think it was Jan Hatzius, and he was talking about in the tech sector, most of the companies that have been laying people off grew their headcount by over 40% right. since the pandemic, basically because they thought all the pandemic trends were gonna keep going. Maybe there's a little bit of labor hoarding, but it's a big figure. Absolutely, you know, people in our industry, journalism, when journalists lose their jobs, there's always trolls on Twitter saying, oh, learn to code. You know, that's like a thing. I think at one point even like Twitter started banning people for saying that. But I guess the question is right now when you see these layoffs, like, should we learn to code or is that not, you know, is, the, is that not the career safety net that it used to be? So all kinds of questions about what is going on in the market for tech talent. I'm sure someone's going to tell us to learn to code. Probably. For the record, I can code just in like very non-useful languages. I have no well, I coded in basic, like what yeah, I was eight. Yeah, exactly. Seven. Like C and like some really basic HTML, but all right. Let's talk to someone who knows more about this question than we do. We bring back Patrick. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. So I guess the question is before we even start talking about the recent layoff announcements. Why don't we start with like the hiring boom that we really saw over the last two years, just massive amount of headcount added and all these companies, we know who they are. What drove that? So how about we roll back history to 2019? And if you're looking at recent history as of 2019, tech has been on sort of an uninterrupted series of a bunch of very good years broad-based expansion across the entire industry, basically riding, continuing to ride the wave that had happened since uh, the late aughts, is that how we say it in English, with uh, the consolidation of uh, mobile gains, et cetera, et cetera. Then the pandemic happened, and there was a brief pause of, okay, is this going to be an absolutely catastrophic event for the entire world economy? Many bad things happened during the pandemic. The way it played out for tech was probably not how anyone would have expected. One, there was sort of a one-two punch of a combined fiscal response from uh, governments both in the United States and and worldwide to stave off a huge economic disaster, which had the effect of both putting money into consumers' uh, pockets and also uh, juicing the markets for assets 
for example, tech stocks, uh, which we'll come back to the importance of that in a moment. Two, a lot of the customers were, due to various um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, sitting at home with very little to do other than use the internet. And so a lot of commerce that had uh, been possible on the internet before, the share of it that was soaked up by the internet in uh, both sort of like semi-discretionary uh, places like food delivery, but also much less discretionary places like, you know, core supermarkets suddenly shifted online in a very, very fast way. And so this combination of there's more money slashing around and more of it is falling into the online bucket led to absolutely blockbuster years for tech companies. And it was a real like trying to keep your fingers onto the rocket internally at the companies, like the uh, amount of new users that was onboarding, the at the rate of growth of the business, the raw volumes of stuff that was going through the pipes made it like difficult to keep everything up and running. And in a good news front, uh, the businesses largely successfully did keep up and running during a time where society very much needed them to. They also started to like readjust their projections of what the future would look like. And uh, for a while, it was looking like, hmm, uh, the phrase that was going around was decades of growth were happening every couple of weeks in terms of you know our anticipated long-term shift of the offline economy into the online economy. Um, and there was a big question of how long does that continue for? And is that pulling forth growth, growth that is happening in the future? Is it a one-time spike, et cetera, et cetera? Due to various structural and competitive dynamics, a lot of firms bet simultaneously, this is a pretty durable change. We find ourselves crushed by the amount of demand we're seeing right now. We are going to need to hire and hire aggressively to deal with this and to position ourselves for what we see as the you know eventual coming out of the pandemic future. And as a result of this, companies were mature companies, the, the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks of the world, were hiring on the order of like 20% year-over-year growth across large portions of their business. Somewhat uh, earlier stage companies companies that might look like a Stripe, even though Stripe is uh, uh, somewhat larger uh, these days, or uh, early stage startups were onboarding multiples of their pre-pandemic uh, headcount, is the word used, over the course of the pandemic. So huge expansion during the, uh, during the interval. And then as we came out of the pandemic, companies assessed a number of things. One, the growth rates tended to go back to historical norms rather than this shot in the arm that uh, the pandemic was offering. Importantly, and you know, tech is a wide sector, it touches every sec- uh, part of the economy these days, so it's difficult to say with huge generalizations. But as a top line level, things did not decline back to 2019. And again, 2019 was not a bad year for tech. Uh, it was a, a, you know, a pretty good year after a number of pretty good years. So we haven't gone back to the pre-pandemic baseline. We haven't even stopped growing in a number of cases. The growth curve has just bent downwards. And so the sustained like 20% plus plus uh, headcount growth over time didn't look like it could be uh, could be sustained. And then companies started to look at things that they had allowed to happen over the course of the pandemic. To characterize these broadly, one of the things that uh, happened uh, during the pandemic was uh, due to the lockdowns and inadvisability of having large numbers of people congregate in small pockets of air, a bunch of companies went to both remote work and remote hiring, where they might not have had a huge amount of institutional experience with that model of working before. And after two to three years of working with these uh, newer cohorts of people, they've found that there are some 
practices that they want to continue from this remote work world into the future, and that there's some amount of internal impetus to return to office uh, and have sort of a cultural reset around the office or headquarters, et cetera, as the uh, sort of beating center of these firms. I've worked remote for most of my career myself. I'm a uh, broad fan of the model. Let's say that there was some cultural tension in companies on like where the locus of activity is going to be, whether it's going to be in this uh, online and Zoom meetings and Slack all the time, or in the office, high bandwidth communication directly with trusted peers. And a lot of companies wanted to have a bit of a pullback towards the office. And then they're looking more granularly at the classes of people that they hired over the last couple of years and found that in comparison to prior classes, there was a bit of cultural drift relative to where the companies want their baselines to be. And also, in some cases, a bit of a measured productivity difference versus where they wanted their baselines to be. That's sort of expected because when you're pulling out all the steps to hire, you like necessarily you have to be a little less choosy than you normally are. You have, you know, to the extent that you ascribe any value at all to the in-person interview loop, which I ascribe relatively little value to, but hopefully it's like slightly greater than zero. You, you know, lose that amount of signal and they're sort of uh, hiring in a slightly more challenged fashion than usual. And so a thing that companies will be pretty quiet about saying, but will will say to themselves is, we, we probably have a few more regrets in like the 2021 and 2022 hiring classes than we did in like the 2017 and 2018 hiring classes as a percentage. Patrick, this actually leads to something that I want to ask you, but what does bloat actually look like yeah. in the tech sector? And, you know, is it something that only emerges as business activity actually slows down or even in 2020 and 2021, would you have characterized tech as bloated? So it's difficult as tech uh, sort of subsumes more and more of the economy into its uh, ever-increasing embrace to make like huge paint with broad brush assertions across all of it. But let's see where to start here. So one, the number of things that are done in these large companies are extremely varied. People might have a image that like most people who work at Google are engineers. That's actually not the case. Depending on the company we're talking about, between 20 and 40% of the people who work at the company are technologists, broadly writ. Uh, they are software engineers, they're system administrators, they're designers that some companies uh, report into the same division. And then the rest are every sort of worker that you would have in any company in the economy, lawyers, regulatory people, customer support agents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, management, layers upon layers of management. So what does is, what is, uh, company growth look like? In one case, it is staffing up more teams to work on products that already exist. Sometimes staffing teams that uh, sort of like grow with the the rate of uh, usage of your products, so like customer service teams, typically grow relatively linearly with the usage of your service. Sometimes it's teams that grow relatively linearly with the size of your organization. So as companies were having these sort of like unprecedented amounts of employees getting onboarded every year, they needed larger recruiting divisions to staff up their other employees. And it's just based on like the productivity math of a recruiter. And you can like finger to the wind that if you hire a recruiter, that recruiter will be able to hire 25 people in a year. And so if you need to hire 4,000 people, then, you know, 
uh, work the math backwards, you uh, require 160 recruiters that you didn't have previously. That will tend to cause your recruiting division to get uh, larger as you are doing a rapid expansion, and then it will contract faster than the rest of your company will when you decide to take your foot off the gas pedal. So those are the the things that are sort of less inside of your control. You, you just need to keep doing them to uh, to run the business. And then you're making some um, more speculative investments on like what are what is our new product lineup going to look like? What features are we going to add? And so the basic unit of organization within an engineering organization these days is a single engineering team. It'll typically be like five to eight people. And that team has uh, mental bandwidth to deal with three relatively narrowly scoped problems. And so the more that you want your software services, suite, et cetera, to do, the more like narrowly scoped pro- problems that come into its domain, the more like five to eight people engineering teams you need. And so you might find yourself in a position where you've hired like five to eight people to work on three relatively narrowly scoped problems somewhat um, opportunistically. And then when you, you know, come to 2023 and are thinking very rigorously around like, okay, we think we're a little bigger than we were when we were efficient back a couple of years ago. We think the economic environment not be uh, might not be as strong in 2023 as we were modeling. Which of all the problems in our company are the ones that we definitely need to keep focusing on and which can we defer until later or just aren't core to our business right now? Then perhaps like some of these narrowly scoped problems are not at the top of our list. And then if you consider, you know, like this product that we thought we would bring to market in 2023, maybe it will not be brought to market till 2024. Then there might be like 10 teams implicated by that that you do not have prompt need for. I have a lot of questions. You know, when Elon bought Twitter and he like went, you know, much more aggressive with the layoffs than anything else that we've seen, there were all these like like VCs and stuff who commented like oh, the dear, the dirty secret in Silicon Valley is that all these companies could do that. And they have 50 percent of their employees not really working on anything and not really contributing anything. And like, thank you, Elon, for showing that this can be done. And Twitter still is operating, although I don't know how the business is or whether he cut too deep to the bone or whatever. But like when you hear that, like, is that the case that just like over the years, setting aside the unrealistic expectations of 2021 and maybe 2022, was there just a wide scale overhiring relative to the needs of the business? So tech has been in sort of a land grab mode for essentially all of my adult life. We certainly haven't uh, hit the asymptote of how many things in the economy can be orchestrated by software. We certainly haven't hit the asymptote of how many human-in-human interactions will be intermediated by a technical system happening over a smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. In that sort of land grab mode, you aren't simply like trying to answer what is the minimal set of things we can do with a minimal number of people, but are uh, sort of opportunistically looking at what are the next 10 things that we can try such that one of them becomes a company-defining product feature, et cetera, et cetera. I have a little bit of respect reflexive contrarianism when people say all tech companies are overstaffed by 80%. Could you cut 80% of people who work at tech companies and still have something functional at the end of the day? Probably true. That would be extremely painful. But if you went into a very different mode of operation and just wanted them to continue the products and services they had three years ago, possibly that could be done. Probably wouldn't be optimal for any of them. That's one major reason why uh, nobody does it. 
There's also some knock-on like cultural, et cetera, effects that make it virtually unthinkable. If you were an executive at a, at a tech company and you were sufficiently in your cups and had a, had a heart-to-heart with someone and said, what's the true number of like, if I could wave a magic wand and no consequences, where would our staffing be? It would probably be like eighty-five to ninety percent of what it is currently. I think. I think most people would say like, "Oh, there's a bit of, there's a bit of like, I hate the word fat uh, in this context, but uh, you know, a, a little bit of fluff around the edges." But uh, we're not in systemically a, a a terrible place. And I think you know, you you would get different numbers from different people in different parts of the organization. But that feels like plus or minus right to me. Should be noted that I was a mere worker bee rather than the sort of executive that would be tasked with making that kind of decision. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Patrick, you mentioned the sort of impetus towards creating company-defining features. And this is also something I've always wondered. Is there a bias in tech towards creating new products and are employees and engineers, you Mm. know, rewarded for doing new things rather than maybe maintaining the old ones and perfecting those? This is an extremely important thing to understand the behavior of the large tech companies from outside of them. They all have what's called a perf process in the industry. It's called perf. Outside, it's a, a performance review. And the performance reviews are largely how a company takes creative work that is done over this time scale of like quarters and years and is often sort of indefagable and very airy and reduces it to a number such that the company can dole out things of value like promotions and bonuses and career paths, et cetera, et cetera. And perf happens on a semi-annual or annual basis. And the way perf works at most large tech companies is it heavily biases in the direction of getting your name attached to new things that shipped in the world versus, you know, I was assigned to this legacy product. The product did not go down for six months. You should definitely give me a bonus on that basis. Oddly enough, uh, this is not straightforwardly the things that is in the company's interest because 
all of the money is made by existing, well, not all of the money. The super majority of money in the tech companies uh, is made by satisfying customers you already have rather than getting new customers. And the super majority of money is made on your oldest and truest products rather than the new stuff. But institutionally, tech companies bias towards we want our best people to be on the new things all of the time. And if your individual best people want to be you know, doing the hard yards that keeps the old stuff running, they will quickly be dissuaded by their mentors and managers, et cetera, and say, no, 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 that is not the way to exceed expectations. You will, like, if you only do great maintenance work for the, for the next couple of uh, uh, years, you will be, you know, severely career limited here. So figure out something new to do and make sure your name is attached to it in a way that is legible to your manager and your manager's manager and this performance review process. So let's talk about the layoffs that we've seen, because you said something interesting in your first answer, which is that sort of like hiring discipline, hiring quality during those crazy years of 2021, part of 2022 may have been loose, uh, maybe not as uh, the standards were a little lower or maybe people just didn't fit or something like that. When Mm -hmm. companies these days are now or recently making the decisions about who they're going to let go, how skewed is it? towards that sort of recent cohort? Because the other thing I could see is that, look at many companies, you probably have people who have been there forever, who are getting paid extremely high salaries or very good salaries just based on the fact that they got some bump every single year. Maybe they're not pulling their weight to some perceived degree as much as they used to be. So how much of the, you know, when when they when the uh, executives looked and say, okay, we're going to make cuts, how much was it skewed towards the new cohort versus seeing as like, this is an opportunity to get rid of some highly paid employees that maybe don't add as much value as they want? So a disclaimer off the top, layoffs are like understandably traumatic for the people who go through them. I, I don't want to minimize that. At the same time, I think we often, particularly as as workers in this industry, sort of like abdicate responsibility for understanding the like structures that cause these things to happen in ways that are not in our interests. So broadly, it's it's good to have like open conversations about uh, how these sort of decisions are made. I think it is different on a firm to firm basis, but broadly speaking, you would not want your simply to like roll back the last six months of your hiring. There's a couple of different reasons for that. One is that when you're dealing with these complex ecosystems that a sufficiently large company is an ecosystem to itself, there's all sorts of levers that you are like managing in parallel. And one of those levers is that you are attempting to balance the seniority ranges in various parts of your organization, such that you always have a mix within some error bars of uh, how many people that you have that are acclimating to the company versus how many who have acclimated and could do productive work versus how many are in that senior mode where they can lately parachute in to consult on things and do the hard architecture stuff that your more intermediate employees might not be able to do yet. If you sort of create a bubble in the pipeline by concentrating your cuts in the people that were only hired in the last six months to two years, then you are setting yourself up for a bubble a couple of years from now where you have far too few people at a portion of the experience curve to do work that you urgently need to do work on a week-by-week, quarter-by-quarter basis. And so if you come to the conclusion that, oh, we've hired a few too many people over the uh, the last couple of months, what are we going to do about that? 
you have to distribute your cuts over a larger number of cohorts than the most recent cohorts, or you will set yourself up for some pain. There's also some compliance and legal issues that come up with is employee seniority a protected class in particular uh, jurisdictions, which also plays into into a little bit. But the biggest reason is to avoid causing the operational issues for your company. Layoffs is performance management. That is a thing that exists in the world. Uh, And so, you know, if you were hearing skeptical VCs on Twitter that they would say about large software companies is not merely that they were a little bit flabby, but that they were a little bit um, uh, self-assured of their position in the world. It had too many good years in a row. And if you got attached to them, you could, you know, get a job in a corner office and not do all that much and still be fine. I think that is a little exaggerated, but let's say there's certainly cases of it. And there's certainly some people like mature into a career where they continue being impactful over years and decades. And some people end up in sort of a tenured professor mode where they've become critical to the organization because they know a couple of things that the organization needs to know, but they don't bring the same uh, intensity that they used to in their career. And then there are some people who have like successfully created a a niche for themselves inside the company that the company might not desire to exist. And nobody wakes up in the morning and, and says, oh, today I want to do layoffs. But given a circumstance where everyone in the industry is doing layoffs, some executives might say, okay, it is a good time to like reevaluate and like turn up the, uh, the heat a little bit on our performance management and say, okay, is there anyone who has been coasting a little too long? Is there anyone who has uh, you know created a secure little nest for themselves in a way that that nest does not add a lot of value to the company. Given that we we need to uh, usher some people onto new positions, let's like start with that first and then move to the cuts that are going to take more mental energy to do. You know, we're talking broadly about hiring discipline and the idea of bloat. And this is a slightly loaded question, but to what degree, if any, do you think the sort of maybe monopolistic moat that some big tech companies have built around their businesses has contributed to some complacency on the hiring front. I'm a little adverse to the word monopolistic, but I I think I get what you're getting at in that um, there is certainly a lot of rent created in the technology industry where uh, these are some of the most effective businesses ever created in any industry. Google AdWords will print a ginormous amount of money next year, and almost no amount of action taken by any set of adverse actors, internal or external to to Google, will cause Google AdWords to not be worth many, many, many billions of dollars. And so the, the margins on it are very high as well in comparison to, uh, you know, we were talking last time about the airline industry, where the airline industry has struggled mightily to maintain like single-digit percentage positive margins over a multi-decade time frame. Tech doesn't have that problem. The nature of these very sticky products, the sheer size of them, and the margins do tend to create a little more room for uh, flabbiness than uh, in exists in uh, many industries that have more of a cutthroat reputation. This is sort of the polar opposite question, but nowadays we hear a lot about the possibility of companies hoarding labor. When it comes to tech, how much of that do you think has actually gone on in the sense that do you see tech companies opportunistically hiring people just so their competitors can't get their hands on them? 
I have heard this theory advanced many times, and honestly, I don't think it is very explanatory. And sometimes it's uh, phrased, you know, Google would rather hire a a particular talented engineer so that they don't uh, create a startup and then eventually become competition to one of Google's products. If hypothetically that were something that actually motivated executives at tech companies, there would be a number of things that would be easier to do than quote unquote labor hoarding that we don't do institutionally. So uh, in finance, there's this institution of gardening leave. Tech doesn't institutionalize gardening leave at any level, almost anywhere in the industry. And if you were thinking about let's prevent highly talented people from doing interesting things for our competitors or for uh, new startups that they could create, the people in the industry that you have the like tightest bead on their productivity level are your existing employees. And so you would be you would think, oh, well, like the natural place to start is like start with people who already work here and say, if you leave, we would like to buy 12 months of your time sight unseen. And no one does that. And there's other things that you can do. Broadly, tech is, there's always a bit of push and pull between the needs of company and the needs of employees, but broadly tech is strikingly pro-worker relative to many industries in the United States. These things that are done that would be consistent with the labor hoarding hypothesis just are not done. You know, you, you can talk to the people that are involved in the decisions that, that are read on the outside as uh, labor hoarding, and they never advance that uh, as a uh, reason to, you know, buy up a new company that has four engineers attached to it. It's typically phrased as something more similar to, well, this is a team that seems already gelled. They're clearly highly, highly productive individual, individual contributors, and we could have a bunch of engineering recruiters work for months to find uh, four similarly talented individuals, or the uh, M&A team can, like tick one box off in Q1 and get them all in the door for the price of one low check, let's do it. The notion of like, and let's take this team off the table so they don't, you know, have a market success in three years and create something competitive with us never comes up. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Okay, we've sort of talked about why the hiring boom happened in the first place. We've talked about maybe some of the decisions on who is getting cut. Let's talk about the uh, sort of prospects for the people that have Mm. lost their jobs and or the people that are thinking about going into a career in tech. So how quickly do you perceive that the people losing their jobs over the last several months are finding new offers? Like, let's start really simple. Can I tack something onto that, which is how how fungible are these types of of jobs in reality? Yeah. A long time ago in a place far, far away during the dot com crash, I was uh, graduating from university and the Wall Street Journal was, which I read the Wall Street Journal every day with my father growing up. It was how I learned to read. The Wall Street Journal could do no no wrong in my eyes uh, as a uh, an undergrad engineer. And uh, the Wall Street Journal was pretty decided that, yep, engineering as a field is done in the United States of America. Henceforth, all engineering will happen in Asia. And I said, oh, shucks, I really wanted to get an engineering job. I guess I have to move to Asia. And so I did. Oh, the, the backstory. Now, now we know the why origin story. This is the backstory of how I ended up spending my entire adult life in Japan. Now, that ended up being a good, re- like a good life decision for me for entirely unrelated reasons. But it turns out there were, in fact, engineers hired between 2004 and 2023 in the United States. And so reports of the field's demise were heavily exaggerated. If you are considering a c- career in engineering, Every reason you had to consider a career in engineering in 2022 is like still a reason to do it. So this like minor wobble that will be forgotten in a matter of months, please don't allow it to like cause you to make major drastic life decisions. Although, you know, life is what happens when uh, when you're busy dealing with these little wobbles. Okay, so that out of the way. How fungible are people? Broadly speaking, In the early levels of career, tech tends to cast a very wide net and hire people for what's often called uh, horsepower with the expectation that they will be able to specialize over time. There is some degree of worry that if you spend 10 years or 15 years in a particular industry doing um, the the quote often used is uh, have the same year 10 years in a row, then you will end up over specialized and only be available for doing that sort of thing in the future, depending on the thing you are doing. There might be a sharply limited set of firms for which that is relevant. But broadly speaking, the engineers that were hired to do anything in the first five, seven-ish years of their career are broadly expected to be able to do not quite anything, but like a large subset of all the things that a tech employer could want an engineer to do. And so the liquidity in the tech market within like a broad class like recruiters or engineers, et cetera, uh, liquidity between job titles, exact roles, exact companies, business model of the company is very high. And I'm forgetting what Joe's original question was. <laughs> well, so- Oh just, yeah, are okay, they finding new the jobs? short term, yeah. like you must hear from people, you must talk to people, like oh, uh, yeah. people who just so, got cut off, are they are recruiters already reaching out to them from different companies? Structurally tech company- <laughs> Well, this would be a bad pull quote. Structurally, tech companies are like sharks. Okay, we're gonna but pull. We're gonna pull that like, quote now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just like sharks, like the the way that their gills work, they have to keep swimming, or they they stop getting oxygen, and that's an unfortunate thing for most creatures. The tech companies, because of their staffing models, they uh, and that thing we talked about earlier, where they are constantly mixing the uh, number of people at each level of seniority within the company, they have to keep hiring. And so even if an individual company decides like, okay, we're going to like push pause for six weeks and do 
quote unquote, a hiring freeze. One, the amount of time that they can actually do that and not severely damage the business is limited. So a pause is always temporary unless the, the company is going down the tubes and like the large tech companies certainly are not going down the tubes. Some startups might get shaken out at the margin due to uh, uh, funding constraints, et cetera. But the, like, the overall business of the internet continues to grow apace. So pauses are temporary in nature and there exist, you know, like many different companies inside the the broader ambit of tech. Some of them might be paused at any given moment. Some of them are, you know, still attempting to make new investments for 2023. And some of them, while they're not in uh, sort of rapid growth mode, uh, growth mode for 2023, are doing things like, you know, we have to backfill for people who are leaving the company. And in a typical year at a typical tech company, that might be like 10% of our engineering staff. So if we've got 2,000 engineers, we have 200 engineers that we are slated to hire in 2023. Interestingly, one of the uh, things that caused a bit of the overhiring was companies have this model for what percentage of people will leave uh, in a year and therefore how many you need to hire just to stay at the current level of employment that you have. And when the economy started wobbling in 2022, what happened was the the rates of voluntary attrition at companies, meaning that people who resigned out of their own volition, went lower than the model predicted. And because you need to like set in place a process that takes months to hire people, but the the process of deciding not to quit uh, is not visible for those months. That resulted in sort of like a hiring overhang. And so companies overshot their targets for how many people would be in the company, um, which doesn't sound like an easy thing to do, but is a very easy thing to do if there is a sort of like sharp change in employee behavior with regards to things that they have total control over and don't have to announce to you, like deciding to leave or not leave in a statistical fashion. Are there signs that tech workers should look out for that they're about to be laid off? Like, do you stop being assigned new projects? Do your access codes get cut off? Does someone come take your stapler off your desk? Like, what exactly are the warning signs that you might be in the danger zone? Many, many tech people have a large degree of stress with regards to whether I'm doing well, am I on the list, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to add to that stress. Broadly, you should you should have a an understanding of how performance is calculated at your company and consider that official view of your performance to be perhaps more important than you would naively believe it to, because the official view where your the entirety of your performance is reduced down to like one number, I'm a four for this six months. That is the only view that is going to be available to someone who might be two, three, four uh, steps above you on the ladder when they're going to make uh, hard decisions in a hypothetical future where they're making hard decisions. So the things that cause formal visibility to the company are anomalously important. Uh, And the career-oriented people around you who are very good at um, working those systems to their advantages will find advantages based on that. But I wouldn't, you know, over-rotate on perf is the only thing we're thinking about. Seems simple, but just do great work and then make sure people are aware of the fact that you did the great work and then things will tend to work out in a career fashion over a sufficiently long period of time. Knock on wood. So I have a question that bridges this conversation with the conversation we had last week about IT. And I realize I should have asked it last time. This Dude, whole episode has been because yeah, Joe didn't just, ask I had this one, question. I actually only just had one question from last time, <laughs> so I had to come up with a whole excuse for why we needed to have you back on just so I could ask this. But it occurred to me, you know, like in the in the business press, 
we're always reporting on CEOs getting fired or let go and hired, sometimes CFOs. I don't see much coverage of like CTOs or CIOs, like the people who run the internal tech systems being let go for poor performance. I actually think the only time I can ever remember hearing any sort of CTO or something losing their job for poor performance is probably like 15 years ago when Twitter was always having the fail whales and like they weren't scaling very well during the boom years. And other than that, I can't actually like recall a time in which I like read a story about it, you know, a CTO being laid off for bad performance. How often does that happen? And, you know, in the context of whether we're talking about tech companies or all, you know, I think we were talking about uh, Southwest and others last time, like how often do the head of, do those positions lose their job? Because they say like, our, our IT is not good. So it's a complicated subject for a number of reasons. One is that the degree of saliency of CTO most companies to the media is relatively low. The degree of saliency of many things that are very important in the tech industry to the media is lower than many people in the tech industry would like. Uh, and that is uh, one cause of the frequent conflict between the media and tech. But be that as it may. Do people get laid off for poor, poor, poor performance? Yes. One relatively frequent thing that happens relative to the incidence of senior, impl- senior executives departing is the uh, sort of like fall on your sword motion if there's a significant outage is a thing that frequently happens or frequently relative to all causes for departure. I'm hesitant to give you the example because Tokyo is a small town, but there are a number of banks both in Japan and uh, outside of Japan that have had disabling computer outages for like days to weeks at a time where that is an extremely, extremely thing to be avoided for a bank and rules up fairly directly to the head, uh, the head of IT or the CEO. And there are cases where either the head of IT or the CEO have left as a result of doing that. There is one thing that I do like about the culture that is Japanese management, where in uh, the sort of like ritualized speech that an executive gives it uh, that, they will often say, uh, please don't blame the people that had their hands on the keyboards during this the fact that this was allowed to happen was a result of management's uh, misdecisions or taking over the course of years. I uh, presided over them, and as a result, this uh, this outage, even if you know it was one person individually uh, fat fingering something that took us down for a week, this belongs at my door, and I am uh, resigning to take responsibility for it. There are many things I don't love about Japanese management culture, but that bit I I, I do like. Another thing is. There are reasons for companies to be other than other than maximally public about the fact that we are removing a senior executive for cause. If you remember that over the course of the last couple of years, the IT sector has been in a sort of like massive boom mode. Companies are extremely protective of their brand with respect to engineering candidates. Nobody wants to join a organization that exists under a cloud whose CTO just got fired for being an idiot. So the thing that might happen is like, oh, well, the previous VP of engineering wasn't quite up to snuff. Maybe they can be shuffled on to a different project and we're going to hire a CTO above them. If you've already hired a CTO, that's a bit of a, a bit of a more difficult thing, but uh, like shuffles with regards to who are the most important people in the engineering organization? And is there a separate product organization? Do they report to the same people, et cetera, et cetera, are sometimes caused by like, eh, X isn't getting it done. We want to like shuffle in Y, but we don't want that to be seen as a, a repudiation of X. Not because we care about X's opinion so much, but we care about how this will be read by internal engineers who we want to keep attached to the company and external candidates. 
right, one last small question, though probably a, a question that we could talk about for a long time, but just real quickly. So the one one area within tech that seems like almost certainly going to be hiring like crazy for years at this point is anything to do with AI, and you know we all know what's uh, going on there. How much are the skills that some of these like sort of cutting edge AI companies in need of? How much are these skills that uh, sort of legacy or existing tech workers might have? Or how much are the skills that they need something that like you really need years of like focus training in the specific area to satisfy what these companies need? Can I can I add another thing onto Please. the back of that? Please. Uh, how many coding jobs will something like chat GPT destroy? Yeah. Should people stop <laughs> learning to code? Yeah, yeah. Talk about talk about chat GPT. So I have a glib but true answer with respect to our advanced AI techniques going to destroy programming jobs. The first program or class of programs that we had where an advanced computer was uh, obviating the need for human programmers was called the compiler, where instead of doing you know complex, low-level instructions directly in assembly and speaking sort of natively the language of the computer, you'd use what were called high-level programming languages like C back in the day. And then the compiler would, you know, use its magic AI powers to turn that C into assembly language so that you didn't have to laboriously do the assembly language itself. So every technology that gives programmers more power, more capability to you know, do things that are valuable for human society probably increases the aggregate demand for programmers is sort of like my high level view on the world. And I've yet to see a, um, a contrary example to that. So an interesting question with regards to AI is what are the like what series of steps is going to be necessary to take it to market in a way that it actually creates the value for individual people and for society that it seems to have latent within it. And if you look at like chat GPT, if you like view it as an iceberg, there's the above the waterline part and below the waterline part. And the below the waterline part has some, let's say, deep, deep magic there. Bracketing out that magic for the moment, it seems like the above the waterline part was very important in why everyone has heard chat GPT and probably used it if you're listening to, to this podcast, but uh, hasn't heard of like similar efforts at Google, etc. The reason is that there was a, you know, a product focused team that made a relatively pedestrian piece of software, like a chat interface, but made it really, really good. And like worked on that to the point where people's interactions with the underlying large language model would be like sufficiently effervescent that you would screenshot that interaction and share it over to Twitter. And so everything that that above the waterline part is amenable to the uh, to the technologies and uh, tactics that uh, existing engineers have with no modification whatsoever. They're, you're talking to a backend. The backend is implemented in a different kind of magic than your backends usually are, but the backend has always been magic to you. That is like part of the answer. There's an interesting question on like how much of the work is going to be that above the waterline part, the productization of these, you know creating like new forms of user interfaces, new models for interactions with users, new metaphors that we have to teach to people, like new, you know, there there might be an entire field in like education on how to do, I don't know, prompt engineering. Well, prompt engineering being how do you type in the right uh, series of incantations to the ma machine so that the, uh, the uh, spirit it summons up out of the ether does the right thing for you. So like what percentage of the work will happen there versus what percentage of the work will happen on these like 
core under the hood model things. A sub sub question to that is like, okay, so for the work happening at that model layer, is that work going to happen at every company that consumes models, or is it going to happen primarily at OpenAI and Google and Microsoft? And we can count the number of firms that like need this these engineers on a single hand. In a world where we count the number of uh, firms that need like dedicated hard AI researchers on a single hand, that probably implies like lower total employment of them than in a world where every firm that touches AI has its own AI practice on staff. But it's at least as of like the current state of play, deeply uncertain where that will shake out. And so these are some of the questions that get debated among people at both the AI firms and also like, you know, if if you are a VC that's adventure that's uh, investing in the space, you are probably having like a number of interesting dinner conversations on okay, where does the value accrue in this chain? Where does most of the work get done? What do these products like expose themselves to in the life of a user? Is it something deeply under the hood or is it integrated into their daily operations? Do they know they're using an AI? Do they know they're using software? Is it something that they're like directly typing in or is it something that they're interfacing with someone who's doing the typing on their behalf, et cetera, et cetera? Well, Patrick, so- this was uh, absolutely great talking to you. We could talk for a long time, but instead we'll just uh, talk to you in a few weeks again when we have uh, a million more <laughs> questions. No, I'm being facetious, but I learned a lot and really appreciate you coming back on the show. Thanks very much for having me and always happy to come back. Thanks, Patrick. That was fun. So, Tracy, there were so many interesting elements of that conversation. I'm really glad we had Patrick back. I'm not even sure where to begin, but to start, you know, his point about the hiring boom during mm-hmm. the pandemic, I thought was interesting. Not just that maybe these companies had a sort of unrealistic expectations about how long this growth boom would last, but that when you're hiring that fast and under sort of extremely unusual situations, yeah. like you have that drift where maybe you're like, there's a little bit of a, we're not that happy with the class. And then also that point, but you also can't just hire everyone who came in recently for reasons of like seasoning and like skill level growth. Well, to me, it kind of, I guess, hammers home the point that three years on from the start of the COVID pandemic, we are still experiencing these abnormal developments. And it kind of gets to the macro versus micro point about some of the recent payrolls figures, you know, all the tech layoffs that have been announced. Are they saying something about the wider economy or is this really a tech specific problem? And I think, I mean... I can kind of argue it either way, but I think I come away from that conversation thinking, well, you know, 2020 and 2021 were really unusual periods in terms of hiring for the big tech companies. And to some extent, it seems reasonable that that starts to get rolled back a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's also I, I take his point as he and I suspect it's probably true, which is that if a year ago you were thinking you wanted to go in, into engineering or coding or something like that, very little about what we've seen so far in 2023 mm-hmm. should make you change your mind. I thought that was really interesting, too, about like sort of the questions about AI and how. So it's like, as he pointed out, like there are other, you know, places working on very similar, if not equal, technology. What sort of made things break through recently 
was the consumerization of some of the chat interface or some of these AI imaging things. So Mm -hmm. like how much of like the go-to-market for this stuff ultimately is it sort of like familiar experiences that people already have? It reminds me a lot, and I I don't mean this necessarily in a negative way, but it reminds (laughs) me a lot of crypto in the sense that like, yes, there is a lot of hype around AI, but also in the sense that this is a new technology that people can actually participate in. And so the use of the um, the AI image generators, chat GPT, it kind of brings it to people in the same way that yeah. they were able to experiment with, you know, blockchain and different types right. of money using crypto. And so it suddenly becomes a lot more salient for people yeah. in that way. Yeah, you know, like with it's a good example because like with crypto, like if you're like interacting with like core protocols or like developing on Ethereum, like that's gonna be a limited, a limited number of people know how to do that. But if you're building like an exchange, right. or if there are a lot of or, I people, mean, everyone can have a wallet, yeah, right? Yeah, or marketing or stuff like that. There are still all of these roles within crypto that have like sort of like consumer facing analogs to any other industry. Yeah. I need to look up the compiler. That sounds interesting. Yeah. I'm going to go off and Google um, deep learning compiler. I guess for, so for job security, we still need to learn to code, huh? I think we need to learn AI. Ugh, I don't know. Probably. I don't know. But, you know, C++, which is what I learned, and a little bit Can of Java. Can you teach me some? No, because it's obsolete. Like, oh. no, I, I don't think anyone uses C++. And they certainly don't use it for, for AI and, I, and machine learning stuff. I should so. have asked Patrick what language I what should What coding language on. we well, should learn. Python, next, maybe. When we have them back in a month. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, our next episode with Patrick will be about which coding language we should all be learning in the future. Yeah. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter. Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Patrick McKenzie. He's at Patio11 and check out his Bits About Money newsletter. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post the transcripts, Tracy and I blog, and we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Go there and sign up. Thanks for listening. Down has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.